Hey, do y'all remember that ad campaign? It was out several years ago in both, I think, billboards and on TV commercials. Uh, featured a guy, black rim glasses, traveling around from place to place with a phone on his ear. Can you hear me now? Good. And he went from place to place to place, in the middle of nowhere to airport restrooms, wherever you could imagine, he's tracking down areas, I guess, where you'd think you'd get no cell service. You know, Verizon wanted us to know they had the best and most reliable cellular coverage of all the major carriers. But I've been thinking about that this week because I think there's a spiritual principle that's buried in that question. Can you hear me now? You know, we often call the Bible the Word of God. And if you start at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the story of Scripture begins with God speaking. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and without void, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters. Then God said, let there be light. God speaks. But life's busy. And there are lots of distractions. Even these devices which can bring us to the Scriptures have little red badges on every icon telling us how many things we've missed. And I think the question's appropriate. Can we hear Him now? Can we hear Him now? You know, I think that's what this passage is all about. Of course, this man is deaf and so could not hear anything. But what about us? Can we hear God? This morning, I want to just impress upon you how important it is that we do. God's Word is powerful. It's powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts. It's powerful to transform wayward sinners and the preachers of the gospel. I don't know anything else that can do that. Nothing else in the universe besides the Word of God. So, can you hear him now? I love this story. We pick back up with Jesus on the move again. Last week, he was in the region of Tyre. Mark tells us that leaving there, he went north to the ancient city of Sidon, and then turned southeast back towards the Sea of Galilee, where he came to the region of the Decapolis, ten cities that were in league together for common economic and military defense. He briefly visited this region back in Mark chapter 5, when he encountered a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And when he'd set the man free... He wanted to come with Jesus, and he said, no, go and tell your friends and family what I've done. And Mark tells us he went back to the Decapolis and announced all that Jesus had done for him. And apparently, this man's testimony had made an impact. So that when Jesus came to the Decapolis again, he was greeted by a crowd of people who had some expectations. They'd heard what he was capable of doing. If he can set free that guy, we couldn't keep clothes on. And he might can do something for me. And among the crowd is a group of friends. 
who have brought along their friend, who is in an incredible and broken situation. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is how this interaction with this broken man proves that God's word is powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts. See, Jesus calls him to himself. This man that Mark describes as one who was deaf and who spoke with difficulty. Now, this man must have suffered some kind of injury or stroke or something that took away all of his ability to communicate. Later, when Jesus loosens the bond of his tongue, is literally the way the Greek reads, the man starts speaking again. So I, I don't think he was born deaf and born unable to speak. I think rather he had a in speech impediment, what we might call being tongue-tied. And so this man had no clue who Jesus was or that he was coming or that if he was coming that he might could help. But his friends had heard about Jesus, and so they bring the man with him imploring Jesus to lay his hands on him and heal him. And Jesus satisfies their request. He pulls the man to the side, away from the crowd, and he intervenes. And I love this little detail that Mark includes, that Jesus pulled him aside. You know, up to this point, Mark has drawn our attention to certain individuals who have pressed through the crowd to get to Jesus. There's the woman with the hemorrhage of blood in Mark 5, and Jairus, who runs up to Jesus. And then there's the desperate Syrophoenician mother we saw last week. These individuals seek Jesus out. But in this multitude of people, I mean, can you just imagine all the faces and all the people who had needs that they wanted Jesus to meet? Out of that crowd, Jesus saw one man. And he pulled him to the side and engaged him one-on-one, face-to-face. I love that. I think that's all you need to know about the kind of man Jesus is. That in the crowd, he seeks out particular individuals. He says in John chapter 10 that he's the good shepherd. And that the shepherd knows his sheep by name. And so you could think about that. Maybe you feel forgotten and alone. Jesus sees you. But he sees this man and he brings him to the side and he intervenes in his brokenness. In a strange way. You look at verse 33 again. Raymond read it for us. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. My Bible, I read out of the NASB. My Bible includes in italics to let us know that it's not in the original Greek text, but to expand and help us to understand that he touched his tongue with the saliva. That's weird. Is that weird to you? You're acquainted with medicine. What if your doctor came into the examination room, said, hey, let me take a look at you, spit in his hand and touched your tongue? That'd be weird, a little counterintuitive, given what we know about germ theory. It's gross. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus did. What, what's up with that? Well, commentators and scholars tell us that Jews in the first century normally considered a person's spit to be unclean and defiling. But there were certain individuals who were so holy that even their spit was powerful to heal. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us a story about the emperor Vespasian, 
who was on a sightseeing trip to Alexandria in Egypt and inadvertently spit into a blind man's eyes. And the blind man was healed because he'd been spit on by the emperor. And yet, all that magical stuff isn't really the feel we get from this story. I don't think Mark wants us to think that Jesus' saliva is magical, and if all you had was a vial of Jesus' spit, you could solve the world's problems. Instead, I, I think that Mark's trying to tell us that this man was closed off from communication. He couldn't hear, couldn't speak, and so Jesus communicated to him in a way that was comprehensible through symbolic act. And he stuck his fingers in the man's ear and he touched his tongue with his saliva, communicating to him his intention that he was about to heal him. But really the thrust of the story isn't on the symbolic action at all, but on the word, aphatha. I mean, usually our Bibles give us English words. Only occasionally do they keep something untranslated. Jesus spoke a Hebrew dialect called Aramaic. And aphatha is an Aramaic word that Mark leaves untranslated in the Greek text. He provides a Greek translation for it. And I think the reason for that is that this is the word Jesus spoke. Ephatha. And whoever heard it, the crowd was eavesdropping, or the man himself, the word left such an imprint that when Mark sat down to write the story, he had to include it word for word, just as Jesus spoke it, Ephatha. The thrust of the story is on the power of Jesus' word, that he spoke and it was so. He said, open up. And the man's ears opened, and the bonds of his tongue were loosed. Now, if you've been with us over the past like year, as we've been working through Mark's gospel, that Jesus' word is powerful is not surprising to you. I mean, already we've seen instance after instance where the authority of Jesus' word is brought to the forefront. Back in chapter 1, he goes into the synagogue in Capernaum, and a man with an unclean spirit comes hollering at him. And Jesus speaks the word, says, be quiet and come out of the man. And the demon did. And all the people are astonished. And they say, what is this teaching? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the demons. And they obey him. Later in the story, Mark tells us that a leper fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Hey, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. Be clean. And he was clean. Later, a man's lowered from the roof on a pallet. And Jesus says, Your sins have been forgiven. The religious people take issue with that. Who does this guy think he is, forgiving people's sins? That's God's right alone. And Jesus says, Which is easier for me to say? That his sins are forgiven or that he should get up and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. And the man did. That's a double whammy. He spoke the word and the man was healed and his sins were forgiven. 
Then out on the sea, the disciples are in a boat. The winds and the waves are crashing all around them. They're losing their mind. Jesus is asleep. And they say, wake up. Don't you care? We're about to die. And he says, you know the words, peace, be still. And immediately it was so. And the disciples said, who is this? That even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus' word is powerful. When he speaks, stuff happens. And in every instance, it's just further proof that he is who he claims to be. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he's the one who's going to bring it in. I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the power of Jesus' words proved over and over and over in Mark's gospel are all the evidence we need to know that he's God. After all, the Bible is clear and consistent that God's word is powerful. We've already talked about it. In the very beginning, at creation, God just speaks. And all that exists that didn't exist started to exist just because he said so. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says, Even now, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. So God's powerful words are undeniable. We see it in the creation. But we also see it in the relationship he makes with his people. And in Genesis chapter 12, there's a man living in ancient Mesopotamia, and God spoke to him. Abraham, leave your father's house and go to the place I'm going to show you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And Abraham goes, and when he's there, God reiterates his covenant with him and says, I'm going to give you his descendants as many as there are stars in the sky, and all the nations will be blessed through you. Later, God speaks to his people, first out of a burning bush to Moses, and then through Moses to the people, brings them to Sinai where he gives them his law, his speech, his words. The Ten Commandments in Hebrew are called the Ten Words, written on stone. Later in Deuteronomy 30, he'll tell them, hey, it's not like my words are far off, but they're very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, so that you may observe it. And all this stuff about words and speech ended up developing a certain confidence in God's people that, hey, God, God speaks to us. And when God speaks to us, things happen. That confidence was stoked by repeated communication from God to his people through the prophets. And they would say, the word of the Lord came to He spoke through Isaiah. He said, My word which goes out from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and not without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. He says through Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire, like a hammer that shatters rock? There's power in God's word. Wherever God's word goes, God's activity is sure to follow right behind it. 
The question is whether people can hear it. Can we hear it? Unfortunately, the Bible is pretty clear on that too. That people don't hear God's word. And Scripture gives us many reasons for this. I mean, I tried to think of how these four reasons relate to each other, if they were like concentric circles or if there was some kind of spectrum or something. So just take the list as it is. There's one reason why the Word of God, which is powerful in its own, proves ineffective in our lives, and the first is our ignorance of it. We haven't heard it. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? So there are billions of people alive today, somewhere on planet Earth, who have not heard the Word of God. They're ignorant of it, and they'll never hear it. Unless somebody tells them. And so the powerful Word of God proves ineffective in our lives because we don't know it. Worse than that, there are some people who do hear it, but are insensitive to it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the things of God are discerned spiritually. But by nature, we're not spiritual. We're natural. We're opposed to the things of God. And so though God's word is powerful, we're insensitive to it, and it goes in one ear and out the other. It sounds like a bunch of gibberish. We sit through sermon after sermon after sermon. It's like, that guy's going on about lots of stuff, but I don't get anything out of it. We're insensitive. Or worse, we're rebellious. Oh, we hear just fine. We just don't want anything to do with it. And that's where God's people found themselves time after time. God spoke through Jeremiah in chapter 5 when he's talking about his word being like a hammer. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? You've got ears, but you don't hear. Jesus acknowledged this reality in his own ministry. That's why he explained the purpose of his parables. He said, you guys get the secrets of the kingdom. But for everybody else, I'm only going to speak in parables. So that while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. That's from Mark 4.12. We've got a whole sermon on that passage if you want to look more in depth on it. And it's not just a pastime problem like something for people back then, that they could be rebellious against God's word. Actually, the author of the letter to the Hebrews gives us this wonderful phrase twice, he says it, and puts it in the present tense. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. The reality is that even people who have access to God's word often rebel against it. They plug their ears and do everything they can to ignore it. One of my pastors used to say that church people know a lot more about the Bible than they're currently living out. He's speaking, and we can hear him, but no dice. Or lastly, and I think maybe this is where I felt most convicted, the word proves ineffective in our lives because we neglect it. We neglect it. 
You know, the Word of God is probably more accessible today than it has ever been in the history of the world. I mean, think about that. There are more reliable modern translations of the Bible in thousands of binding options, bonded leather, goatskin leather, hardback. There are journaling Bibles, wide margin Bibles. I mean, everybody's got one just about. And so you'd imagine that if God's Word's powerful and if everybody's got a Bible, then everybody ought to be living right. That's not the case, is it? I mean, even though people died to get a Bible in their own language, and even though today people would risk imprisonment, torture, and death to smuggle one into their country, ours sit on our bookshelves gathering dust. We neglect it. It's powerful, but hey, as long as it sits unused on the shelf, it does us no good. And even the phones and iPads, which promise us convenience, the Word of God every day, right here. I'll give you a notification, your verse of the day. Is the culprit for all the distractions that tend to barge in exactly when we want to be reading the Bible. It's like, hey, I'm going to have my God time today, but first let me check what my friends are up to. And 45 minutes later, you've scrolled through every reel ever made, and that's that. No Bible today. You ran out of time. I don't know. It just seems to me that this book, which is God's Word, and which by the working of His Spirit in our hearts is made powerful to transform us and change us from the inside out, ought to have a little bit different impact for us. Instead, we just kind of trudge along with an unsatisfying Christian life. I mean, we're convinced there's something better out there. There's got to be. Why am I not growing in my walk? Why do I feel so far from God? Why do I feel like nothing seems to fall into place? Why am I still struggling with these same old sins? And yet the thing that's powerful, which is able to awaken us to life, sits closed. The answer's right here. All scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's nothing in your life, no situation or circumstance, no responsibility or role that God can't perfectly prepare you for if you'll only get into this thing and let it do its work. God's Word is powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts, even yours. Like a hammer that smashes rocks, God can break open our hearts. That's why I'm a Bible guy, unapologetically. I probably frustrate some of y'all. People sometimes say, hey, you know, Brad, you really believe all that. Don't you know that that book was written like 2,000 years ago or something? 
How could you imagine that it would ever speak to every circumstance or situation, responsibility, and role? Don't you see all the complex political situations going on in our world? You're, you're going to stay so close-minded as to believe what people 2,000 years ago believed in a culture like theirs. But I'm just convinced that you don't grow out of the Bible. We don't advance or progress beyond it. We don't individually. We never get to a place in our walk with God where we don't need it anymore. Like we've mastered it. And so, hey, I've already read that before. I've heard the sermon on it. I'm good. I don't need that. We never get beyond a need to encounter God in His Word every day. Every day. I want to encounter God. I want to hear Him speak. And so i got to be in the Word. We never get beyond it as a church, as the church. It's not like God's going to just develop some new technique for winning the world. Like the speaking of the gospel, preaching the gospel, using the Bible, that was for then. But hey, this new thing is for now. Now churches abandon the Bible at their own peril. I mean, just, just look at some of the denominations in the world. The ones that shrink the fastest are the ones who have no place for the Word of God. And so there are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. And churches that neglect the plain preaching of the Word do so at their own peril. And so that's why at CBC we're committed to being a Bible-believing and Bible preaching, church. If y'all want me to stop, you're going to have to fire me. That's why we are putting together the Followers Five. Because I think you ought to spend time in God's Word every day. If you don't have a plan, you leave here every Sunday with one. Five days worth of Bible passages that are going to help you think about the topic and theme from Sunday's sermon. It's why in our connect groups we didn't go out and try to find a new curriculum or get some video series with somebody teaching. You, the curriculum is this. And we just want to drive it into our hearts and into our lives in discussion, allowing God to do His powerful work in us. It's why we're committed to equipping parents to talk about the Bible with their kids. I mean, if you want to build a family that passes on the faith, there's only one way to do it. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Where do you find that discipline and instruction? Right here. We can't do it on our own. I like what Martin Luther said. He was the German reformer who in the 16th century turned the world on its head. Towards the end of his life, people kept asking him, Luther, Luther, what do you think about this movement? These people are calling themselves Lutherans now. He said, what did I do? Who's Luther. Is it in my teaching? I wasn't crucified for anybody. I just taught the word. I just wrote the word. I just preached the word. And then, while I slept, or while I drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word of God did the work. I did nothing. The word did everything. The Word does everything. It's powerful. 
to awaken hardened and insensitive hearts. And if it wasn't, then this church is lost. Because I don't have any ideas on how to do it. I preach every week and it doesn't happen, so we're waiting on God for the results. So, God's Word is powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts. But look what happens in the story, okay? So, Jesus plugs the guy's ear, spits on his tongue, speaks the word of Fatha, and the man is healed miraculously. And there's sort of an overflow of blessing for everybody who's gathered around. A whole crowd of people responded in amazement. I love the way Mark puts it. He gave them orders not to tell anyone But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Guys, you got to keep down. They got louder and louder and louder. I mean, they could hardly believe what they'd seen. Here was their friend, deaf, tongue-tied, cut off from the world, isolated, unable to communicate. And with just one word, aphatha, one powerful word, the man's life was totally changed. People couldn't believe it. Astonished. Mark tells us they proclaimed it. It's the official word, the technical word in the New Testament for preaching. They proclaimed the good news of what Jesus had done. They said, he does everything well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He does everything well. The content of their message echoes an earlier portion of God's word in Isaiah 35. Isaiah brought a message of doom and gloom, but towards the end of the first half of his book, he starts to get to offer some hope. And chapter 35 is beautiful. I think it's like day four of the followers five this week. Just read that whole chapter. It's like 10 verses. It's beautiful. What Isaiah envisions is the desert instantaneously transformed into a garden. And he announces the reason. How did this transformation take place? What was the cause? And he says in Isaiah 35, 4, Your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Isaiah had foreseen the day when all of God's promised kingdom blessings had come. And all the things that were broken, both in creation and in mankind, were going to be transformed. And these people got to see it with their own eyes. He says later in chapter 35 that they will behold the glory of God. That's exactly what they did. Here's this man who everything he does, he does well. Even the deaf can hear and the mute can speak. These wayward Gentiles, people of the Decapolis, who a minute before were lost wayward, had been transformed by one word, open up. So they're proclaiming the gospel everywhere they go. In that moment, God's glory, which the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. They found a human voice 
not just the stars anymore, but even the people on earth join in the heavenly chorus proclaiming the goodness and greatness of Jesus. And I'm just convinced, y'all, that this isn't a one-off thing. These people who got to see the miraculous happen right before their very eyes and then set off to tell anybody they could, doesn't matter how many times Jesus tells them to pipe down. They can't keep it in. They're going to proclaim it all the more loudly. I think that's a one-off thing. That is something that is intentional from God's perspective. You see, there is a direct connection between experiencing the awakening work of the Word of God and joining in the mission to proclaim it to the ends of the earth, to everyone who has ears. A person who experiences the power of God's Word has to share that Word with others. Somebody who experiences that kind of transformation can't keep it in. It's like what uh, the preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He said, there's nothing special about me. I'm just one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. That's who these people were. Our friend was broken, he was deaf, he couldn't speak, and we brought him to Jesus, and Jesus miraculously healed him. we got to tell somebody about it. Tell me to keep quiet. I'm not going to be able to. What I've seen is too amazing. What you did was too good to keep it to myself. And over and over and over, that's how this thing plays out. I love the way Peter and John talked about this experience from welling up inside of them. One day after the resurrection and Jesus has ascended to the Father in heaven, Peter and John are down at the temple preaching the good news about Jesus, announcing his resurrection and that Jesus had brought the kingdom near for anyone who would repent and believe. The religious leaders get word of this. They're causing a riot in the temple, and so they round them up and bring them in for a trial, and they tell them, you guys have to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They said, listen, whether it's right for us to listen to you or to God, you're going to have to be the judge because we can't help but speak about the things we have seen and heard. They can't keep it in. They can't contain their excitement, the joy they have in knowing that Jesus is who he is and has done what he's done. I wonder, church, do you have that same impulse? Do you feel that sometimes? Like, man, there's not enough people in Luling to talk to about Jesus today. Cause another traffic backup, Lord, and I'll just go from car to car to car and witness to them. I don't, I don't think that's the normal Christian experience if you are that way, by the way. I mean, do you find it difficult to keep quiet about Jesus? No, most of us find it difficult to open our mouths to begin with about Jesus, not keep quiet. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you shared what God was teaching you in His Word? Maybe with a friend, with your spouse. We're, we're guilty of this, me and Aaron. We'll do our quiet times. Never really talk about it. Occasionally, hey, what are you reading right now? And we talk, but when's the last time you talk with somebody about what you were learning in God's Word? A friend, when, when was the last time you talked to your kids about it, your grandkids about it? Hey, man, I was just in the Word this morning, and this just jumped to me off the page. Like, I just like, okay, yes, Lord, I hear you. When was the last time? And why was it so long? It's not because God isn't speaking. He's spoken. But can't we hear him? 
I mean, it is God's intention that every person who experiences the saving and transforming work through His Son would join in the mission to declare the good news to the world. I'll prove it to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You're saved, so you would share the good news with others. So that you would announce that Jesus does all things well. So that you would overflow with praise and gratitude for who He is. And everybody in your sphere of influence would hear about it. Church, the Word of God is powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts and to transform wayward sinners into preachers of the gospel. Is it powerful like that for you? I think the sad fact is that many people don't have much to talk about from God's Word because they're neglecting it. They're living in rebellion to it. They're insensitive because they're unregenerate or they've never heard it. Now, I've taken number one out of the equation today. We've opened up God's Word, and I've tried to make the point of this passage as clear as possible. So you're either in one of these three categories, or you're spending time in God's Word every day, and you could answer the question, what's God been teaching you in His Word? I wonder which it is for you. You know, probably today, in this room, there are people who have heard the Bible preached or have even tried to read the Bible for themselves and would just have to say, I've never gotten anything out of it. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the truth is, the Word of God is spiritually discerned, and without the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you'll never understand the Bible. You must be born again. You need God to take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. But you know His Word is powerful to do that. His, His Word is powerful to awaken insensitive and hardened hearts. It's powerful to exchange a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. This morning, I would encourage you, if you would say to yourself honestly before God, I have never gotten anything out of Bible reading. I encourage you to ask God to change your heart. Say to Him humbly something like this, God, I want that. I want to read the Bible. I want to hear your voice. I want to grow. Help me. Change me so that I can hear you. I don't know why God wouldn't answer that prayer. That's a prayer God loves to answer. He doesn't desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to salvation. So this morning, if you've never 
made a commitment to follow Christ, if you've never chosen to be baptized, if you've never gotten anything out of the Word, I think today you ought to be honest with yourself and with God and to say that the reason you can't and the reason you've never is because He's never done His transforming work in you. Humbly cry out to Him today. And then there are people in this room who are living in open rebellion to God. You know more about the Bible than you're living out. And you're racked with conviction and guilt. You know it. You know what God's Word says in black and white. You've been hearing it all your life. And that's how we got into this mess. When God created people, He placed them in the garden and He gave them His Word. You can eat from any tree in the garden you want to, but there's one tree in the middle that you can't eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the first people got together, and they saw that tree, and they thought to themselves, wow, this tree looks great. It's desirable to make us wise. It's going to give us knowledge of good and evil, and it looks tasty. And so they rebelled against God's word. Knowing full well the consequences, they went after it anyway, and because of their sin... You and I inherit a sinful nature that assures us we will follow in their footsteps and add to their sin with sins of our own. But God loved us while we were yet sinners, and he sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life, perfectly obeying the law, keeping every word that God spoke. And then he died on the cross to save rebels like you and me. And so if you leave here today, having heard the word of God one more time, and you resolve in your heart that he wasn't speaking to you, that that was for somebody else, be warned. Rebellion never ends well. And today is the day you should turn back to God. Repent of your sin. Submit to his word and live a life of faithful obedience. And here today, there are people who have been neglecting the Word of God. It's set on your bedside table, only to be picked up when you bring it faithfully on Sunday mornings for too long. And you need to commit in your heart that for as long as you live, you will live on the principle that a person doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you'll resolve in your heart that of all the foundations you could choose to build your life on, you'll build your life on the words of God so that you'll be like the man who built his house on the rock when the storms came and the rain fell and the wind blew and the floods rose, the man's house was secure because he'd built on the rock and not like the person who built their house on the sand. And when life went crazy, when kids ran off, when marriages implode, when finances evaporate overnight, you don't lose your ever-loving mind. 
but you've sunk your roots so deep into something that will last forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Resolving your heart to never neglect the word of God again and see if it isn't powerful to awaken every bit of you that has gone dead and to transform you into the person you know you ought to be. You pray with me?